I have come to the realization that we are responsible for the society we live in. Welcome to the podcast, Being All of Us. It's great to have you here. My name is Brian David George, and my mission is to inspire you to become an agent of change in your own life through the stories of people like you from around the world who are on a journey of self-discovery and inclusion. I believe that these conversations will lift you up and help you to uncover your potential and to become your higher self. So sit back, go for a walk, a run, a drive, whatever works for you, and enjoy some time to get to know more about yourself. And here we are back to the Being All of Us podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today, I have a very special guest, John Dudley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brian David George. What is your middle name, by the way? Or do you have one? I don't know. I don't remember. Yes, I do have one. I don't know if you knew or not. It is Cleave. C-L-E-V-E, That's right. Which, yes. which a lot of people think is supposed to be Cleveland. Like, oh, is it Cleveland? And just, you know, the rest of the name didn't print out or not. And though apparently it's Cleve because my father was interested in aviation. So he was a private pilot. And apparently this was, you know, when I was very, very, very young, he had an airplane and he would fly it around and whatnot. And apparently around the time I was born, he wanted to get some new brakes for the airplane, which number mm. one to me seems like it's a critical component. But my mother said, no, we, we don't really have the money for these new brakes. And the brakes apparently had the brand name of Cleave. So she- So you're named oh, after brakes? I'm apparently <laughs> named after some brand of, of, of small general aviation aircraft brakes. Yes. Nice to meet you, John Aircraft Breaks Dudley. There you go. <laughs> nice to meet you all. So we've actually known each other for, for a long time. We knew each other from, from school, from middle school, I guess, is probably when we first yeah, met. Yeah, from middle school, yeah. So I, I like to start off these, these episodes just listening to you tell us your story. So I know something about you. Now I want more people to get to know you. So tell us your story, John Cleve Dudley. Where, where, where do you want me, like, where in the timeline do you want me to? Wherever it feels natural to you. Uh, okay, so I'm me. And I guess, you know, it, it, it all started when, you know, of course, you know, sperm met egg and then you know, produced me. That was, if you're, you're going to ask me about pivotal moments in my life, that was probably one of the top 10 yeah, moments of my life. Probably. It's almost like if that didn't occur, nothing else. Would we wouldn't be happen. sitting here talking so, right now. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that occurred some 45 or so years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, I have just been, you know, trying to make my way around in the world, both metaphorically and physically, trying to become more of a citizen of the world, more of, hmm. I love, you know, looking at the earth from space. You know, I love a globe that doesn't actually show borders because that's our natural state of being, you know. Borders are lines that we draw on a map, on a picture. They don't really exist. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so they're completely unnatural. And I know you know a little bit about this, but, you know, one of the other pivotal moments of my life was in 2006, moving to Africa. And Mm. when I did that, I didn't know I was moving to Africa. And the weird thing is, at that point in my life, it really just felt like I was getting on a bus and going across town. Like it didn't really amazingly, like I was shocked. It didn't feel like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to the other side of the world. 
but I, I got on the airplane and just said, okay, let's, let's go. And that's what I would like it to be. That's, that's the feeling I like to experience. And that's the feeling I want everyone to experience. So I'm, I'm hoping, you know, generation after generation, the world actually does get smaller. So, okay. We, we, we know each other from Newport News, Virginia, in the United States. You were talking about moving to Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about that African chapter of your life? Yeah, so the, the, the brief scenario is, you know, went to college, studied computer science, ended up deciding I wasn't going to work for a Microsoft or whatever. I wanted to work for myself. So I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And then in 2006, my sister came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm uh, my sister's a pediatrician. And she said, uh, you know what, I'm going to leave the country for a year. I'm going to this place called Lesotho. And I'm going to take my then nine-year-old godson. And I said, oh, Lesotho, where's that? She said, it's a small little country in Southern Africa. And I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll come and help you settle in for, you know, a couple of months since I have control over my work. As long as I can get some internet access, I'll, Mm -hmm. you know, come help you settle in for a couple of months with the boy. And so we moved to Lesotho, which we then learned was not Lesotho, but Lesotho. A uh, small little, small little mountainous kingdom that is completely landlocked by South Africa. So if you look at a map of South Africa, you'll see a little circle that looks like, you know, oh, maybe it's a lake or something like that. That's a completely sovereign nation uh, that is called the Kingdom of Lesotho. So 2006, I went over there with my sister and thought I was going to be there for a couple of months. She claimed that I was whenever she talked to her friends and whatnot, she said, yeah, my Manny is going to go pick up. <laughs> uh, so I was supposed to be the Manny. She, oh, sorry. Uh, Manny, Manny, for somebody who's not a native speaker, what is a Manny? Could you explain? Uh, so, so instead of a nanny, I was a Manny. <laughs> so um, was a male, male Manny. Manny. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so we went there and she was uh, contracted to be there for a year working with a U.S.-based healthcare organization, mm-hmm. uh, treating children with uh, HIV. So I went there and uh, she left after a year when her contract was uh, over and the child's mother wanted her child back. <laughs> and uh, I ended up staying there for another 10 years never having expected to live in another country before. When you say you never expected to live in another country before, was there another time that you had been to other countries before then? Yes. And obviously you know this. <laughs> I know um, the answer. And so for, for, for those of you who don't know, um, uh, my first time out of the country was with Brian David George uh, when we were, what was it, 16 or 16 or something yeah. like that. We both participated in the German exchange program. Uh, and by the way, I don't remember if this was something, did you just voluntarily do this or did I try to convince you to do this or did you try to convince me to do this or did we just happen to do this? Together? My memory is not that good. We might've talked about it. I don't remember. We might've just kind of convinced each other like, Hey, we should do this. Or somebody might've convinced us to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Crippen. Maybe. Anyway, our geography teacher probably convinced <laughs> us to do this. So uh, the German exchange program was basically uh, this program where a teacher in our high school had a very close relationship with a teacher in a high school in Germany. So every year, I guess it was 20 or so people from Germany would come over and stay with, stay in American households with the mm-hmm. students of our teacher. And then they would come over for three weeks and we would go over there and live with them for three weeks. And Mm. so that was my first time out of the country, which I think was also your first time 
mm, out of the country yep. as well. Yeah. Yep. So that was definitely an amazing experience. But at, at that point in time, in one sense, even though we were staying with households, it was still kind of like tourist mode versus, you know, hmm. actually really living on your own in a country. So I expected that I would go on vacations maybe to other countries, but I never really thought, oh, I'm going to leave the good old USA and, you know, <laughs> live in another country uh, until it actually happened. You know, it's funny that you you call it somewhat of a, a tourist experience. Because I feel like, at least for me, that was a very, at this point, you know, I'm also 45. So I, I've, I've been a tourist and I've been a traveler. And for me, that was really a moment of not even being a traveler. It was a moment of living in a different environment with people who were from there. You know, it was, we were living in a family. We were living in, in a household. And like we saw their day-to-day -day life, which was very different from ours. I wonder, could you speak a bit more about the difference for you? between like living and that first experience? So, so I, I definitely get what you're talking about. And, that, and that's why I say the, the experience was amazing. But it was, it was probably, I guess, looking back on it, it was more, mm. I, I find it more amazing than it was, you know, when I was actually going through. Because, you know, when I was, I guess the reason I say kind of touristy is because mm. even though we were living with the families, you know, there was a clock ticking and we knew we were going to be back in <laughs> right. you know, Newport News, Virginia in, you know, three or four weeks versus the experience of living in the country where, so I remember when I realized I was going to be in Lesotho for longer than just a few months, eventually mm. I, you know, this is more of a logistical thing, but eventually I stopped buying round trip tickets where it originated in the US and you would fly to Lesotho and then mm. have a return date. And the reason was I never knew when the return date would be. It became yep. more of, oh, I'm going to vacation in the U.S., so let me get over to Africa. Air quotes there. <laughs> vacation in air quotes. <laughs> uh, let me get over to Africa, and then I'll start booking round-trip tickets from my new home in Africa mm. to the United States because I was more able to predict that, oh, I have time to spend two weeks in the U.S. Let me fly over there. So right. I guess with Germany, it was, it was a really wonderful experience. And especially so because, as you said, you know, we were, you know, living kind of the day to day. Mm. Uh, you know, we went to the school with them. We saw their parents. They worked. They came home from work, you know, et cetera. Mm. But there was always, you know, up oh, in a couple more weeks, we're going to be back in our normal in our normal circumstance. I guess that's probably what I mean in terms of, you know, temporary versus indefinite. You know, um, when you're talking about what it's like living in a different country, I, I would love to hear some of maybe your experiences from the first, I feel like a lot of things happen within the first year or two of living in a new country. Could you talk a bit about what it was like being you, you know, from Virginia, suddenly living in Lesotho? Okay. So I'll, I guess I'll, I'll go through some different experiences I had in Lesotho that made me, you know, oh, hmm. first of all, for those who can't see me, I am African-American by descent. And what a lot of Black Americans feel is, oh, you know, Africa is the motherland and I'm going to get there and it's going to, you know, just immediately feel like home. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to feel like I'm at as, home, right? Yes. I'm going to feel like I'm at home, even though I've never, I've never myself been there, but I'm going to feel at home. And you do actually feel a bit 
a bit at home, mm. but you know, and, and people are going to treat me like, like I'm another African. But my first realization was no matter how you look, it doesn't really matter. It mm. is the first thing that comes across to most of the people that, that were there were, yeah, you may look a little different than the you know Caucasians that come over here from America, but you're definitely American. You're, <laughs> you're obviously American, you know, in your in your mannerisms, in the way you go mm. about doing things, in the loudness of your voice, mm. <laughs> in the in the way you kind of push yourself around sometimes a little too mm. much, that sort of thing. So, but but people would look at me and say like, I, I'm not 100 percent where sure where he's from, mm. in part because he's he's lighter than us. He has lighter complexion than us. But he also has these dreadlocks, these long dreadlocks. And, and by the way, Brian, I guess this is one big difference between the high school version of John mm. who had very conservatively, generally short hair and, you know, the John of now who has, you know, long dreadlocks. And so a lot of people I remember, you know, I would walk down the street and a lot of people there, their only knowledge of dreadlocks were Rastafarians. The local people in Lesotho do not generally keep short hair. So a lot of people would look and they would get really excited and they would pump their fist in the air and say, more fire, more fire, which I didn't know what it meant because I'm not Rastafarian. <laughs> but apparently that, you know, more fire because, you know, Rastafarians, they smoke a lot of the, the marijuana, right? <laughs> And so they would go, more fire, more fire. And what, what I recognized what they were talking about, I, mm. I wanted to correct them. I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm not a Rasta. And mm. then they would look very disappointed. And then, you know, you know, a couple of days later, I'd walk down the street, someone else, ah, more fire, more fire. And I'd say, no, 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 I'm not Rasta. And they would look very disappointed. So then mm. eventually, after, after a while, I realized, you know what, I don't want to disappoint these people. You know, they want to probably go back and say, go back home and say, oh, my gosh, I saw this Rasta guy. And so the next time, you know, there was a more fire. I was like, yeah, yeah, more fire. And would pump my chest. <laughs> so, so even though when I was initially there, first, you know, several months, I was an outsider in a, as far as the, the, the locals were concerned, but I was an intriguing outsider. I was, you know, kind of exotic because you don't see these long haired people mm. walking down our streets. By the way, by the time I left, Many more people, dreadlocks became a thing. You started <laughs> the, you started a trend. Not, not at all. <laughs> but the thing I, I I started realizing was, my gosh, you know, I know a lot of black Americans might say that, oh, you know, we don't feel at home in America because of mm. you know, the way police treat us, the you know, societal discrimination and mm. that sort of thing. But at the same time, there is so much about our personalities uh, mm. and our mannerisms and, and our culture that, you know, we do still have some, you know, so-called African roots. But, mm. you know, we are very much we are very much seen as Americans first by by mm. uh, by the people there. But at the same time, I did get a sense that I was treated a little bit differently than some of the Caucasians that were there from America who were definitely my friends. And, you know, we kind of hang out, hung out in the uh, expat community. But I think part of that was just that, you know, I kind of wanted to make it feel like home because of course this is the motherland and I'm, I'm home in the motherland. So, you know, let me get to know the people and, and, and that sort of thing. And so I was welcomed into you mm -hmm. know, homes, into people's lives, et cetera. One of the, again, I was only supposed to be there for a few months. 
And uh, while I was there, the clinic that my sister worked at, it was set up no different than a clinic or a hospital might be in the United States. You know, you had big, large building, you know, exam rooms with exam beds, computers with an electronic medical record system on them, et cetera. And they lost their IT person at the time. He was from Australia and he was mm. moving back. And the clinic, which was a nonprofit organization, couldn't quite afford to pay what the going rate was for an IT person in Lesotho. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll help out and I'll help you find somebody eventually, but I'll, I'll help mm -hmm. out in the meanwhile. And so I started, you know, I was still supposed to be the Manny while my sister was there. So I still had my Manny responsibilities, making sure that Anthony, uh, the nine-year-old at the time, you know, got home from school and that sort of thing. But I would go in like three days out of the week for half a day each of those days to help out with IT issues at the clinic. And while I was there, there was this driver named Dimpo. So in uh, Lesotho and in a lot of countries in Africa, people will hire drivers. Individuals mm -hmm. will sometimes hire drivers or companies and organizations will hire drivers. And so he was employed as a driver at this clinic. And he was someone he you know, finished high school and he never actually went to college. He didn't have the, the funding or didn't have the, the right grades to get into the national university there. And when he got his job there, he said he had been passing by the building back and forth. He was at that point in time doing pig trading. He would buy and sell pigs and he would drive past the clinic and he saw it being built. And he thought, oh, maybe that's a new hotel or something like that that's, that's being built. And he went in to try to get a job. And they said, well, we have a role as a driver. And he said, ah, I can drive. So let me do it. <laughs> So he befriended me early on. He, he really loved interacting with the expat community. With a, a Rastafarian. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, that was probably what attracted him. Oh, oh tell me about the Rastafarian. Because his head was shaved completely, uh, right? Okay. He, was, he was just, you know, maybe four, uh, maybe four or five years younger than me. So he knew I did IT. And I think his sister had a computer. And so he kind of played around with his sister's computer a bit. And when he wasn't driving, he would come and hang out in my office and he would ask me like, oh, can you teach me a little something? And so I would show him, you know, what I was doing and explain what I was doing. And then he would have to go and drive again. And then one point in time, this was probably five months into the into my my stay there. He's sitting across from me from the, the desk and he says, Indate John. Now, Indate is the local term for basically father or mister, right? Mm -hmm. It's just you're either an Indate or you're a May. You're a May if you're a, a woman and you're an Indate if you're a, a man. Mm. And so he said, Indate John, I went, I, I, I spoke to the ancestors last night. And the ancestors, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> How was that conversation? Mm. And so he said, the ancestors told me that you will be here for five years and you will teach me what you do so that I can take your job when you leave. And I, I don't think, I, I kind of laughed and I don't know mm. if I told him, but I, I said to myself, five years, I'm, I'm just here for a few months, dude. What are, what are you talking about? Uh, I think your ancestors might, might be wrong. But time went on and whenever he had time, he would either come over to the house and either just hang out in general or he would come to the office and you know, find out what I was doing and ask to tag along. Mm. And so eventually he was spending more and more time with me and I would show him what I was doing and Sometimes he would help out because I was only going to the clinic half of the week. And so he would sometimes help out because he knew a little bit of, of what I had showed him to do when something goes wrong. 
then eventually he actually, we were officially actually able to make him my IT assistant. He still had to drive, but he could also, when he wasn't driving, he could actually, he earned a little bit more money and he was able to sit at my desk when I wasn't sitting there. Then eventually the clinic was growing. There were satellite clinics that were opening up in the rural areas of the country and I couldn't be in more than one place at a time. So we were able to actually get him promoted from being a driver to, mm-hmm. you know, being the official IT assistant. And, and, and by the way, now we're at like year three, year four, year five. And I was like, okay, Dimple, I guess your and the ancestors were right. Because <laughs> it looks like I, I, I've been here for a while. You know, when I finally did leave in, in 2016, and uh, moved back to the United States, he officially took over my role, mm. which at that point in time was the director of IT and facilities management. So not just doing the IT work, but also dealing with building issues, dealing with, you know, making sure critical systems in the building were working and in the other facilities that we were managing at the time. And uh, like just a couple of weeks ago, I, cause I, I still do some work with the organization, especially mm-hmm. with the parent organization uh, over this clinic. So I still interact with the clinic on an official capacity. And uh, for some reason, there was something wrong, and I, or I don't remember what the issue was, but I, I went to the website, and for some reason, at that point in time, it, it really hit me because I went to the website, and for the longest time, they didn't have a website, but they had a new website, which was actually created under his direction. And again, he, he, he never ended up getting any formal training other than what he was exposed to while I was there. And we did mm-hmm. try to formalize it a bit, but he didn't go to an official school to, to, to do this. But I looked at the 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 webpage and you had the top line, you had the executive director and you had the photo of the executive director of the organization. And then below it, you had a heading saying management team. And I saw the photo of Dimpo and he's sitting there looking all professional wearing his suit and tie or whatever. And it says IT and facilities management director. And I was like, page now, now it's real. It's just so real. And, you know, and I, I don't, say that I'm proud of him because that seems very paternal. Let's say I am so impressed with, with what he has done. And, and, and he is very gracious and always comes back and says, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, no, and Dante John, you know, if it wasn't for you, this, that, and the other thing. And for him to say that I actually had an impact in helping him do something that he hadn't even thought of doing himself. Aside from, you know, obviously this pays a lot more than being a driver or being a pig trader, and he's given just more and more responsibilities. The the place I left, you know, I think at the time, Mm. the place had grown and it had grown from, you know, a staff of maybe 40 to a staff of maybe 120 by the time I left. Staffing is now at like 460. And there are seven facilities throughout the country and he is managing. So, So, you know, to see what he was if it's passing the baton to see what he has done since then just impresses me to to no end. And I'm extremely grateful to have been a part of that. It's, uh, you know, I hear you talking about about how he he came to you with this this kind of message from his ancestors. And it seems like the timing might have been a little bit off. And in the rest, they were completely right. I, I, I was I mean, I laughed that he said I was going to be there for five years because I was at that point in time. This was just a, a, a temporary trip. This was by no means was I living in the country. And then lo and behold, you know, 
five months turns into more than the five years he anticipated. And I remember when I was getting ready to leave, when he knew that I was leaving and I I wanted to make sure there was an adequate transition. And so I told him, you know, six months ahead of time that, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving soon. And he, you know, he was like, no, and Dr. John, and I said, yes, I have to leave. Remember, your ancestors only gave me five years, right? I've overstayed my welcome. It's time for you to take over. Because he had some trepidation of being now responsible for everything instead mm. of, I mean, he, he in every practical sense, the last few years I was there, he was responsible because he was the one that was actually doing most of the work. Uh, because again, I maintained my less than part-time uh, activities there. But yeah, the ancestors were were off by the timing maybe, mm. but apparently they were absolutely correct. It's really nice hearing you talk about, about this story. It feels like you, you know, when you were talking about being proud of him, maybe you didn't say the word being proud of him. It, you know, you were kind of admiring the way that he had moved forward, how he had, you know, become a higher version of himself, just to say something. And I kind of get the feeling that it's because you, maybe among other people, believed in him. I wonder if you'd speak a bit about how you think that having someone believe in us helps us to move forward and how important that could be. I I wholeheartedly believe that what you say is true, like a hundred percent. And any difficulty he had while I was there was not the result of a lack of technical knowledge for mm. the role. The things that upset him more than anything else were, for example, when other people at that time who were in management still saw him as, quote unquote, a mere driver. Uh, oh, the, 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 the person he directly, who was you know, basically the second in charge, refer to him as, you know, a driver, you know, mm. even though he was, especially when he was still, even when he was still the IT assistant, right? Mm-hmm. When he was officially named the IT assistant, which took some, some string, like not some string pulling, but took some, you know, demand that, hey, this is absolutely necessary. And he is the, he is the person for the role. You know, there is no, he knows what we're supposed to do. He knows not only what needs to be done, but he knows the way that the organization the local organization and the parent organization like things done. And to hear that he had those kind of interactions with some of the other staff that were local completely was disheartening to him and disheartening to me. So, you know, it's completely disheartening to hear that other staff members, especially, especially local staff, you know, these are supposed to be his brothers and sisters, and to to know that some of them were kind of almost rooting for him to fail or not, you know, propping him up was was very disappointing. And and he definitely came to me several times, you know, with stories of people who weren't taking him seriously, etc. You know, I want to hear you talk more about being taken seriously. You know, because I'm thinking this. I think this is pretty. Everybody can apply this to their own lives. Maybe, you know, a time that you felt like someone wasn't taking seriously or that someone kind of helped you move forward, someone helped you get get unstuck because they believed in you because they pushed you to go the extra mile. That sounds cheesy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean that you know, ultimately that starts from the beginning and that is where I am now is definitely the result of the people that came before me, mm-hmm. um, not just the paths that they laid for me. But the, you know, direct encouragement, the mm. direct attempts to try to lift me up. Tell Without me about, that, tell us about someone. Tell, tell us about yeah. someone who tried to lift you up. 
it obviously starts with my mother. <laughs> okay. um, my mother, first of all, my mother was my mother and my father, because from the age of four, my father passed away of, of heart disease. And so my mother, you know, suddenly found herself with four children that she had to raise on her own. And so, you know, I remember very distinctly, you know, one of my early childhood memories is my siblings going to school because I'm the youngest of four. The next one in line is six years older than me. And I guess I must have been jealous that they were going to school and I didn't, I wasn't going or something like that. And so my mother set up a little school for me. And I, I definitely, I definitely remember, and this is not just like from photos, I definitely remember there being a, a, you know, a certain wall in the house that was, you know, kind of set up as a classroom. I would go to school and, uh, oh, by, by the way, it, it actually starts a little earlier than that. And this is mostly from photos that I've seen, but apparently when I was potty trained, after I was successfully potty trained, Apparently, my my family threw a graduation for me where I actually had a cap and a gown. To what? <laughs> I have graduated from from body training. So I guess, you know, academic success was started, you know, very mm. early on. You know, the idea that, yes, I do need to become educated and that sort of thing. Even to my my career has been in in IT, specifically software development. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, we were raised in a, a, a very middle class to lower middle class income, computers, personal computers started becoming a thing in 1982. And I remember going to the store and you could go to the store at that time. And in the TV section, they would have computers. They'd have a Commodore 64 and an Atari 800 XL and a Timex Sinclair or something like that. And I would go and while my mother was shopping, I would, you know, go and play on the computers. And ultimately, I really, really, really wanted a computer. And they were still expensive at that time. And I remember one day coming home, this would have been, I think it was either first or second grade. But I remember coming home and seeing a box on the couch and it was for a Commodore 64. And I was like, oh, yes, great. Oh, my gosh, this is the thing I won. This, that, that thing, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it was, you know, making sure that I had tools that I seem to express where I seem to express an interest in learning more about and whether those tools are education, whether those tools are, you know, computers or, or, or whatnot, that was absolutely integral in me becoming who I am. So yes, and, and of course, you know, my mother's encouragement goes on, you know, to this day. But even aside from her, you know, there were teachers that, you know, I, I remember at one point in time, there was a, a teacher when I was in fourth or fifth grade, there was a teacher that made sure that during the summer, I got to take one of the school computers home with me, which at the time was like an Apple too. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me, you know, another kind of computer to quote unquote, play around with. So Thankfully, that has happened in my life you know, mm -hmm. on multiple occasions. And so, yes, you might have things that try to pull you down. Gravity is a real force. <laughs> um, but, you know, as long as you still have people that are, you know, providing you with the acceleration necessary and the mm -hmm. wings necessary, you will lift off. And so in my own life, I've, I've realized how vital that was for me. And <laughs> I have had increasing motivation to try to find ways to do that in other people's lives, whether it's intentional acts that I would try to do or unintentional acts, because 
you know, in some regards, I'll, I'll give you an example of a role model that doesn't even know who I am. So yeah. uh, when I was growing up, I was growing up a child of the 70s slash 80s. And my favorite TV show growing up was The Jeffersons, right? Mm. Or, you know, the 90% yes. audience that probably, you know, is like, that's too old. I don't know. What oh, there are people our age who know The Jeffersons. <laughs> So the Jeffersons is basically a story of uh, of uh, a, a man, a woman, and their child, uh, mm. a, a, a black man uh, and his family, <laughs> and he opens up seven locations, one near you, Jefferson Cleaners, a cleaning store, mm. right? And he moves on up to the east side to a deluxe apartment <laughs> in the sky. Yes. That's from the theme song. So that, that's the thing I miss. I'm singing it in my head right now. <laughs> I miss that shows today don't really seem to have theme songs. So much right. or theme songs that set up the entire story. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, you know, as a so as a kid, I watched that show religiously. Hmm. And I saw myself as that's what I want to do growing up. Not that I wanted to be a dry cleaner. <laughs> But I wanted to go to work in a three piece suit like he did and, you know, have my own business and that sort of thing. Mm. And so when you know he passed away in the past decade, I think it was. And when he passed away, it dawned on me like, my gosh, he had an impact. I'm sure on other people's lives as well. Right. But he had an impact on me and he didn't even know I existed. Mm. Right. And so. We are the products of, yes, the people who are close to us, our mm. families, our friends, and that sort of things. But we're also products of the society in which we grow in, where mm. thankfully, we also have some people that don't know who we are, that are mm. actually a key part of motivating us. Uh, and so when he passed away, like that was a dawning on the fact that your impact may not be necessarily by your direct actions to an individual. So try to have a positive impact where people who may see what you're doing, but exactly. may not know you and you mm. may not know them, where you exhibit that positivity and inspire mm. people, if you can, from afar. It's funny that you say that because when I often think that we don't even realize it. In fact, I can think of examples, you know, from, from life. We don't even realize how we influence other people until maybe once 10 years, 20 years later, somebody mentions to us, you know, that one thing that you said to me once changed the course of my life. Here's another story relating to Lesotho. And, and, and by the way, Lesotho may be a small country of 2 million, but mm -hmm. it, it seems like this weird nexus of the world where once mm. you go there, you end up suddenly having all of these random connections in, in other parts of the world and, and that sort of thing. Like there are so many people I have run into outside of Lesotho that we've crossed paths because of Lesotho. And mm. I will randomly find them in the airport of, I'm transferring in at Charles de Gaulle airport. And I happen to be passing by someone that's also crisscrossing the world. And it's like, oh, hey, John, hey, you know, so-and-so. But one time I was traveling, I think it was from Lesotho back to the United States for, you know, a two-week trip. Mm -hmm. And uh, I stopped over in uh, Abu Dhabi and I'm sitting there in the Abu Dhabi airport and I had like a long layover, like I think it was like a six or eight hour layover. Wow. And I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, on the computer reading something and someone taps me on the shoulder uh, and it's this young lady. And she says, and I look and I, I don't recognize her at all. And she says, and John. And I was like, oh, okay. This person's from Lesotho. And I'm like, Yes, <laughs> I'm in Dante John. She's like, 
oh, you don't remember me. And I was like, sorry, I'm really, really sorry. I, I'm, I'm not sure. You came to the travel agency one day to buy a ticket in Lesotho. And I worked at that travel agency. Now, she wasn't the travel agent. She was mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, the, the receptionist or something like that. And she said, do you, do you, do you remember now? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely remember. Because there was one time where I don't remember, maybe the internet wasn't working or whatever. And I actually had to go mm-hmm. to a physical travel agency to buy a ticket. And so I had gone to the travel agency and they're printing the ticket or they're looking something up or whatever. And so I'm chatting with people and I asked this young lady, I said, so, you know, have you gone on any of these trips that you sell to other people? And she said, no, no, I've, I've, you know, I've been to South Africa, but that's just by, by road. I've, I've never been mm-hmm. on an airplane or anything like that. And I was like, no, no. And I'm, you know, you know, I'm being my overdramatic self, you know, just a, <laughs> you know, a bit. And, you know, I'm like, oh, no, I'm, I'm so, you know, you can't go and, and, and sell tickets and you don't even know what that's like. No, you need to go to these places that you're selling tickets to and this, that and the other thing. So I, I had that flashback and she reminded mm. me of, yeah, this we had this interaction. And I was like, yeah, yeah. So I do remember you now. And she's like, yeah, what you said, I ended up doing. I decided mm. to get a job working for Etihad Airlines. No way. So she went from working at this little travel agency in Lesotho to mm. suddenly, for the first time in her life, getting on an airplane, going to the other side of the equator to live in a country with a culture she's never had any exposure to. And she said, Yeah, no, thanks to you, I've actually been to a bunch of different places because the airline allows me to, you know, take vacations to the places mm. they fly. So I've been to Thailand, I've been to Vietnam, I've been to, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And so, you know, obviously she is where she is because mm. of the efforts that she put into doing this. But she seemed to claim that you yeah, sparked I, that in her. I thought about that after you mentioned it. And then I got to thinking and then I started looking into it and, and I was like, oh my gosh. So, you know, you talk about the impact you may have mm. unintentionally exactly uh, on on somebody's life so at the same time you have the ability to have a positive impact make it i mean you have the ability to have an impact whether it's positive mm. or not depends on what you choose to do or choose not to do and sometimes it's not even intentional like the you know the story that you were talking about i'm sure that at the time you didn't realize you were a divine messenger giving her that little spark that would change the course of her life Right. Yeah. No, it was. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, yeah, words do have impact (laughs) on people. You know, we're constantly creating the reality that we live in through the story that we're telling through our words. So, yes, exactly. Through through our words, through the tiny little gestures we we might do. Mm. It's like really it's fascinating. It, it, it intrigues me about the world. So those days where I might say, you know, ah, you know, someone upset me or something like that. I look back and still think of how great the world actually is and ideally how much better we can make it hmm. through our individual actions that we may do. So, for example, so I'm looking right now, I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at there's glass in front of me. And I noticed this the other day and I, I left it up there. So I, I have these, my office is internal in the building. Mm. And I, I, I specifically picked this office to lease because I, I liked what I could potentially do with it. 
But one of the things I wanted was I wanted people for some reason, you know, maybe I'm a bit of an exhibitionist or something, I don't know, but I wanted people to be able to see whatever it is I might be doing, even if I'm just sitting here coding on the computer. So I ended up having these big, large panels of glass installed. So it's basically almost a glass wall. Hmm. And a few days ago, I, I noticed, you know, sometimes I'll see fingerprints or handprints from people outside that are, hmm. you know, kind of peering in and seeing what's, what's going on in there. And the other day, I noticed that there was fog from probably a mouth that was, you know, breathing a little too close. Mm. And that was only at about like two and a half or three feet high, which indicates unless an adult was crawling on their knees and <laughs> through, it indicates there was probably a child that was walking through and was like, ooh, th there's something cool going on in there. What's, what's, what's going on in there? And so there was no, I wasn't even here, most likely when the, when the child came past. but. The fact that I decorated out the office to make technology kind of look cool might happen to inspire that eight-year-old that was walking by. There was somebody, a person who just leased office space in the same building, another young man, he's, I think he's 19 or 20 years old. And we met outside. He didn't realize that this was my office. And then at some point in time, he was like, oh, wait, you're the guy. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm the okay. guy. He's like, you're the guy, uh, you're the guy with that office. And I was like, well, there are a lot of offices here. No, no, the cool office. And I was like, oh, well, if you think it's the cool office, sure. Mm. And, and he says, no, you know, I'm just starting my business and uh, I have an office that's near yours. And sometimes when I just want to get motivated, I come across and just look in your office. I haven't seen you there yet. And that's because of COVID, but I haven't seen you there yet. But I look in and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do my office like that someday. <laughs> So again, the, the tiny little things that you do that may positively impact somebody's mm. life. But like, like I say, you know, your impact can be positive or it can be negative, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I, I kind of, when, when I heard about the purpose of your podcast, it, mm. it really just, it got me thinking. And, and we had a couple of emails and there was an email where I, I don't remember exactly what you were mentioning, but you were talking about, you know, the general impact on the world. And it made me, it, for whatever reason, that sparked like a bunch of connections between things that have happened in my life that I never mm. actually drew the connections to before. Tell me more. And this starts back in elementary school. When we moved back to Newport News, my mother had to enroll me in school and I was in the accelerated classes. And so I... I was in the accelerated classes when I was in the place I had come from. So they were trying to put me in the same classes when I got to Newport News. And so we went over to Richneck Elementary School, which was in your <laughs> stomping grounds uh, to find out, you know, what needs to happen and that sort of thing. And ultimately they said, no, I, I, you know, I will, I have to be bused from Richneck actually over to Nelson, our own Nelson Elementary School. And I remember like, like the one thing I remember about that day was, you know, we were standing in the office and there was this little boy that was in the office as well. Right. And I later found out that oh, he was in the office because he was supposed to see the principal because, yes, he would misbehave. But it was this this young boy and he told me that, oh, I, I live near him like he, he's seen me. And he said, why don't you come outside to play? Because I was an extreme introvert and, and you know, mm. I had just moved. And so I'm kind of afraid of my own shadow and this, that, and the other thing. I don't want to make waves. But also, you know, I was just generally introverted. I would go home and get on my computer. 
And so this this young boy who happens to be African-American had said this to me, and I don't remember the exact words he used, but in my mind, I had a negative perception of him from the beginning because he wasn't using the same kind of so-called proper English that I had grown mm. up with using. And so in my head, what he said to me was, you don't, you don't go uh, outside where you be, right? Mm. And of course, you know, where you be, well, that doesn't make sense. And, and, and he probably didn't say the words where you be, right? Mm. But from that point forward, I referred to him as where you be. <laughs> so whenever I would see him, uh, now, now not to his face, but, mm. you know, because I was still, you know, the introvert and I was, you know, the quiet person that never went outside and, and this, that, and the other thing. But to my mother, I would point out, oh, that's where you be walking down the street or, or whatever. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and he lived very close to us. So I would, you know, sometimes see him doing things. And so that was age 10 or 11. And I never became his friend. Part of it was, yes, the introversion, but also part of it was, well, I don't know, he, he seems to be, you know, whatever, right? Mm. And so, you know, I never got to know him in school or anything like that, never really kept track of him. You know, I would just, you know, see him coming and going to his house. So fast forward to age 16 or 17, I'm doing driver's ed. And I was waiting at home for the driver's ed car to come and pick me up so that we could go driving. And so I keep looking out the window to see if the car arrived yet and it hasn't arrived yet. And I was at home alone. And where you be, quote unquote, is now, you know, also my same age. Actually, I think he's a year older than me. And he had, he was in the same grade, but he, he had lost a year. And uh, I'm looking outside and I see where you be outside marching across the street, chasing after this girl who was the mother of his child. So mm. again, 16, 17 year old now with a, a young baby who's, you know, probably several months old. And I see him go up to her or whatever, and he's yelling and screaming or something or another. I can't hear what they're saying, but then I see him hit her. And mm. I was like, okay, something's got to be done. Now I'm in high school, I've gained weight now, but in high mm. school, you know, I was this bone skinny rail of a, of a kid. I was very, very tall, but very, very lengthy, really, 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 really super skinny. So I, I wasn't going to go out there and try to intervene physically, but I was like, I got to call the cops, call 911. That's what you learned to do. So I called 911. The police came there. They were still arguing and whatnot, but he wasn't hitting her anymore. And, and, and the reason why I was really shocked was because he was hitting her while she was like holding the mm. child. And I was like, even that child might, you know, get, get injured. And so the police come and it's, again, I can't hear the conversation, but I think it's the typical conversation of, oh no, we're fine. I don't know why you, you know, why the police were called. We were just, you know, talking about stuff. No, no, I didn't do anything. And she must've said, no, no, he didn't do anything. And they went back in the house, right? Fast forward again. Okay. And I, I don't remember exactly when this occurred, but it was probably seven or eight years later. So, you know, I'm now in my twenties and I was visiting my mother and there was a knock at the door and I open up the door and there's this little kid, you know, probably seven or eight years old, uh, this little boy, and he's holding a, a, a tie, a tie to tie around his neck. And he's kind of mumbling something about, you know, his grandmother sent him across the street to to see if I could help him tie his tie. 
And I was like, oh yeah, no, sure. Here, here you go. Let me, and I knelt down and I said, yeah, this is how you tie a tie and this and the other thing. I don't know, maybe it was school pictures or, 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 you know, maybe a school celebratory event or something that was supposed to happen. And, you know, that was, you know, where you be's child. Now at that point, where you be was in prison or having committed some sort of crimes. I think they were drug related and or, or, or violence related, but you know, this child is growing up without his father. Uh, and without a, a male role model or, or figure in the household that could, you know, show him how to tie a tie. And, you know, I kind of felt like, wow, that's that's a, a sad situation. Uh, and, you know, at that point in my life, I'm I, I recognize that, yeah, you know, that's bad. But, you know, what can I do about it? I, I'm just here visiting my mother. Right. Fast forward again. The father is now, you know, this is, you know, maybe six or seven years ago. Father gets out of prison and is back in the, the child's life. And the child is now, you know, 20, 20 something or another. And I found out that the child died and died of, you know, some sort of I, I, I'm not sure if it was like drug overdose kind of a thing or if it was like violence that was associated with drug activity. And for some reason, when you talked about impact on the world. I a million thoughts went in my head. And, and for some reason, like that series of stories, like you know, like kind of lined up. And I was like, my gosh, what could the impact have potentially been? You know, not that I'm some kind of, oh, oh, I'm the greatest person in the world and can work miracles and not that. But, you know, what if I had just simply gone outside and hung out with him? Mm. You know, what would, you know, with where you be, what would that have potentially done with that line, you know, mm. may have done nothing. It may have done something bad in my own life. If, if he was hanging out with people and I started hanging out with those same people and they were the wrong crowd or whatever, then maybe I might've been associated with, with that stuff too. Although I don't think so because mm. I had a mother back at home. And even though I didn't have a father, I had the influence of that father through my other family. And, and that was something that unfortunately you know, quote unquote, where you be didn't actually have. But what if, you know, so what if maybe he had gotten some positive feedback from either myself and or my family and or my friends, mm -hmm. you know, what might have become of him? And not to say that, oh, you know, he's going to come over and, and, and he's going to learn how to use the computer. and He's going to be a computer person, too. No, not necessarily that. But maybe the path he went down might have been different. Maybe I would have never seen him hit a mother of his child because he wouldn't have impregnated a, a woman at the age of 16 and he wouldn't have been violent minded. Maybe even that child that he ended up eventually having might even still be alive. You know, it's, it's you know, the whole so-called butterfly effect, you know, what might some small little action do when you fast forward years into the future. And so that really, I, it, it, it's not that I feel directly responsible for what happened, but mm. it just really rung a bell in terms of what kind of impact can we have on people, even in the smallest of actions, you know? And right. sometimes we may do something that leads to a positive impact, or sometimes we may not do something and that may lead to a negative impact. You know, I, I hear a lot of pain in this story. I, I, the first thing that just comes to my mind is we do have the power to impact others, even when we don't realize it. And we also can forgive ourselves when things happen 
because you know, there's so many factors in that story. And of course, it could have made a difference if you had spoken to him and there, you know, we're kind of rolling to the end of the time. So <laughs> I would love to unpack all of that because there's, there's so much there. I think that probably what I, what I hear is that, you know, you see the potential you have to impact other people's lives and that's where you want to focus your energy is on being showing up for life in a way that can help others, even when we don't realize it. And I guess, you know, that maybe that there was a part of you then that was avoiding talking to there you be <laughs> for reasons that you didn't even understand at the time. And maybe that can be the motivation to do things differently. I, you know, there's, there's yeah. no, there's no reason why little John Dudley at that time even knew, you know, at 10 years old, why you were not really called to, to be friends with that boy. I think now you can probably look back and see reasons. Well, and so here, here's where I, I hope the positive, the positive of that experience leads. And that is that, I, unfortunately, I did what I will fault other people doing to me. I mm. stereotyped that young boy, you know, mm. because of his language, because of his appearance and that sort of thing. And how can I complain when people do about do that to me if I've done that myself? Now I've mm. you know, I've forgiven myself for that. I, I, I you mm. know I don't hold it. But what can you do with it besides just you know forgiving yourself? And 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 here's where we go. It is that I have come to the realization that we are you know I've, I've come to the I know we're told this, but I've come to the you know it it, it it's inside of me now mm -hmm. this idea that we are responsible for the society we live in, right? Yep. And so I will see something awful that happens, usually on the news or something like that. Mm. And let's say it's even something as horrible as a mass shooting. We mourn the victims and we, we issue our thoughts and prayers and that sort of thing. And, and hopefully we, we do more than that in, in terms of trying to prevent that. But what might we as a society have done to make sure that there was not that mass shooter to begin with, that, that, mm. that there wouldn't be the motivation for someone to be a mass shooter. And so it, it actually, I think, has led me to be a bit more understanding of interconnectedness, maybe of interconnectedness. Absolutely. Yeah. And the notion that the society we build is the society that we live in. And therefore, mm -hmm. if we don't want to see the things that we deem negative in society, then we've got to raise a society, meaning everyone in it, mm. to not exhibit those negative characteristics. You what know what? You do to foster. <laughs> and that is my question for you, my final question. You've rolled into it perfectly. <laughs> it's like you knew this was coming. I'd like to end every conversation with a challenge for the people who are listening, a challenge on how, because really my mission in this podcast is to inspire people to become an agent of change in their own lives. So I think that the smallest actions make, the smallest consistent actions make a big difference. They have the biggest impact. So John Dudley, John Cleve Dudley, if you had to challenge people who are listening to make a small change to create the world that we want to live in, what would, you, what would your challenge for them be? I would say, notice, go out today and actually you know, make a mental list of 
who is on your team. And when I mean who is mm. on your team, I mean everybody that you actually interact with. If it's the cashier at the drugstore when you're picking up your two liters of milk, the, the, the person you see and you may not know their name or anything like that, pay attention and, and kind of put them on a list. The, the Uber driver that picks you up and has the nice smelling car, they're, they're, they're a member of your team. It's whatever any of us individually do, it's the result of what the team that surrounds us does. And sometimes we, we don't necessarily recognize all of the players. So mm -hmm. go out just for one day and see all of the people that have an impact in your life and recognize them as being part of your mm -hmm. team. And maybe be kind to them. Maybe, maybe treat them as if they were members of your team and not as that person who's just a driver, like you said earlier. Exactly. Because that driver is a member of your team and they are so much more than just a driver. Um, Absolutely. And if not for them, you would not be where you are today. Exactly. Oh, wow. I mean, we could talk for, <laughs> for hours. I'm very grateful for this conversation. I, I thank you for, for being on the podcast and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just close it here. So thank you so much, John. It's been an honor talking to you. Thanks so much. Nice seeing you again. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can feel the inspiration and passion that we put into this conversation and that it empowers you to be confident, compassionate, and courageous on your journey, on our journey, to becoming all of us. If you enjoyed that conversation and you'd like to hear more, please be sure to click on subscribe or follow to get your weekly dose of inspiration. And remember to stop by and rate us with a five-star rating on the App Store. Leave your comments below. Let us know what it is that you enjoy about these conversations so that we can bring more of them to you. And stop by Instagram to follow us at the Being All of Us podcast. B-A-O-U podcast. Thanks to the group Bombadil for our intro music, Avery, and to Scott Gratton for our outro music, Motown is Yotown. Come join us again next week for more. Until then, shine bright, you beautiful soul. You are the change the world needs. Go out and shine.